We are in week number 10 of a study through the book of Hebrews. And here's what we've been doing. And we do this because this, this is what we do around here. Uh, we read a passage of Scripture. And when we read a passage of Scripture, we ask ourselves, what does that mean? Like, what, what do those words mean? What do they mean to the first people that read them? What do they mean to us? And then, and here's the tricky part. This, is, this last part, it's a little bit on you, just as a warning. I'm going to ask some stuff of you today. And then we say, well, what should we do about that? It's easy to say, what should those people do about that? You know what those people should do? Let me tell you what those people should do about that. But we actually don't usually ask that question. We say, what should this person do about that? So just, just so you know, that's where we're going. And also, just so you know, that middle question, what does this mean? Like, we're going we're gonna to work today. So if you, have like, if you have like mental exercises that you need to do to get your brain going in the morning, you've got like three minutes to warm up. And then we're in. All right? We're all in. But we'll, we'll warm it up a little bit. All right? We'll warm it up. Um, to warm up, I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about one of my favorite topics, and you'll figure out the topic in just a second. Um, there's a guy named Howard Schultz. You might have heard of him. And Howard Schultz stumbled across this little local business, and he thought to himself, you know what? This business has potential that goes beyond just the few local branches when he discovered it. And so he thought... I think I can bring this small business and I can make it go large. And it turned out all he needed was a few hundred thousand dollars. So he went to the bank and he's like, here's my idea. And he pitched his idea. And the bank said, no, I will not give you a loan. So he went to the next bank and the bank said, no, I will not give you a loan. So he went to the next bank and he went to the next bank. I found this version of the story on the internet. It may be embellished, but it's a great story anyway, all right? It's a great story anyway. He went to 242 lending institutions, which all told him, no, that's not a good business idea. I will not give you the money for it. And finally, he found three friends who would give him the $400,000 he needed so that today... Starbucks has 137,000 employees, 17,000 locations worldwide, and Mr. Schultz is worth around $3 billion. And coffee is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Now, here's what I think to myself. I think, okay, Carl, let's say you had a really good idea. Like, let's say I had a really good business idea, and I was so committed that I was willing to go borrow $400,000 to try this business idea. After 10 banks told me no, what are the chances I keep going? After 99, after bank number 239 said, no, that's too risky, I'm not going to float you the cash, like, what does it take? To get up and ask again and again and again. Like, I have no idea how Mr. Schultz managed to persevere through being shot down time after time after time. But here's what I do know. It was worth it. (laughs) So the topic of the day 
is perseverance. We're going to talk about the fact that in our lives, much like Howard Schultz when he discovered Starbucks and he thought he could take it from one shop in Seattle to a business across the world and he was right, much like he ran into massive obstacles that to any sane person would have felt way bigger than any human could overcome, much like him, spoiler alert, I don't know if this is, this might be news to you, much like him, in life, we run into obstacles that when we look at them, we might go, that is a bigger mountain than I'm able, it turns out, life is complicated. It turns out, life has challenges, has complexities, has problems, has disappointments, has loss, has suffering, has grief that is bigger than a lot of people find themselves believing they can overcome. And because life is full of challenges, obstacles, pain, suffering, heartache, that is so hard we might feel like we need to quit. We're going to read some words from the author of a book in the New Testament. We call it the Letter to the Hebrews. Uh, It was most likely first uh, a sermon that a pastor wrote down and mailed to a congregation that this pastor had a relationship to. And the passage we're going to read today, if you want to go there now, it's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. You can grab the Bible under your seat. You can open the church app. You can open your Bible app. There's Bibles all over the place. Um, But in Hebrews 10, 35 through 37, the pastor is encouraging this congregation to persevere. And it just may be, it just may be, I don't know, that some of us might benefit from some encouragement to persevere in our own lives as well. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Do not... Throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Pray with me again, if you would. God, uh, uh, you have revealed to your people from millennia ago and again still today, you, you make it known that your words have strength and power and truth and guidance in our lives. So help us to be open to your word, speaking to each of us and all of us today. Amen. Okay, so my one word sermon title, it's not very clever, it's pretty obvious. I want to preach a sermon titled, persevere. Now here's the problem with perseverance. I don't know if you know this problem, but here's the problem with perseverance when I think about it. See, perseverance is something you need when you're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, right? Like if it's easy, if the circumstance you're in is it's Friday night and the kids are asleep and you've got a bowl of ice cream in front of you with chocolate sauce, I don't need perseverance. Like, this isn't difficult. This is easy. I will do that all night long with no, no second thoughts. 
Perseverance is something we need when we are in a difficult circumstance. Perseverance is something we need when we're in a circumstance that's so difficult we don't think we have what it takes to make it through that circumstance. But the problem is, in order to build perseverance, you have to go through difficult circumstances. But in order to go through a difficult circumstance, you need perseverance. But how do you get perseverance? Well, you go through difficult circumstances. But how do you go through difficult circumstances? You do it with perseverance. So the perseverance problem is that the challenging circumstances that help you develop perseverance are the same circumstances that demand perseverance. So what am I supposed to do? I mean, here's what would be nice. It would be nice if life gave us challenges, like challenge number one, itty bitty little baby challenge. And then challenge number two, just one little baby step bigger. And then challenge number three, one, like that would be nice. Our perseverance was only tested a little bit more and we just had to take, that, that would, does anybody want to stand up and be like, yep, that's how life works. Anybody? No, I didn't think so. Here's how perseverance normally works. Um, a good buddy of mine, one of my college roommates, was in town for the weekend. Now, my buddy is training for an ultra marathon next weekend. He's going to run 35 miles. So he's in town, and he's like, Carl, training run. He lives in Minnesota. He's like, we're in Colorado. I want to get a long training run in the mountains. And I was like, yes, I'm a runner. I have run long distances in the past. (laughs) So the idea was floated. Hard to say who first floated the idea. Let's not go there. The idea was floated that we do a 20-mile run on a trail in the foothills. In the past four years, I have run as many as 10 miles on flat ground numerous times. Turns out, with a number of miles left, deep into the Indian Creek wilderness area outside Sedalia, my legs said, I'm done. (laughs) My lungs said, I'm done. I hate to admit it, my lower back said, I'm done. You know what would have helped me persevere in that moment? Having run more miles would have made it easier for me to run more miles. But that is the perseverance problem, is life doesn't give us one small challenge at a time. The need for perseverance sometimes comes like a freight train and it knocks us over and it's 10 times larger than anything we've faced before. And when we're in that moment, we go, how in the world am I ever going to make it through? And I think the author to Hebrews hid in plain sight the solution to the perseverance problem. When they wrote this word of encouragement, persevere, for in a little while the one who is coming will come, they gave us a key that can unlock that problem and show us what, what, uh, 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 how we can develop perseverance beyond even the experiences that we faced or the challenges we've overcome in the past. But in order to unlock that, that little solution, we got to do a little work. So here's what we're going to do 
to understand the words of the author of Hebrews. We're going to remind ourselves the circumstances of the first congregation that read this letter. We're going to remind ourselves of the purpose the author had when they sat down and wrote this sermon and sent it to them. And then we have to spend some time in the book of Isaiah. And I know that when you woke up in the morning, this is what you, the first thought on your mind was, I really hope Carl summarizes Isaiah 1 through 27. And because that was your first thought, that's what we're going to do. Because it turns out understanding the book of Isaiah is necessary to understanding the book of Hebrews. This is the hard work part, but I believe in you. We're going to get it done. All right, so that's the outline. Circumstances, purpose, book of, Isa- book of Isaiah, all of this to understand how to solve the perseverance problem. Are we good? We ready for that? All right, this was your war- that was your warm-up. That was all the warm-up time. Here we go. Circumstances. So we've talked about this before, but we just, it's always good when you're reading scripture to like get your head to realize that like we're sitting in a nice air conditioned building with lights and stage and, you know, South Suburban Denver area. The first people to read this letter was a group of Jewish, Jesus following people living in the Roman Empire, sometime in the mid to late first century AD. So we're talking like, maybe it's been about 30 years, maybe as many as 60 years since Christ had lived, died, and risen again. There may be a few people left alive at that time who had personally known Jesus and could say like, yeah, dude, I was there, I saw it. But most of those people have now passed away, and we're at the beginning of the second generation of Jewish Jesus followers. And this congregation that's reading this letter we call Hebrews, this congregation most likely lives somewhere around the capital city of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And their day-to-day lived experience is such that the Roman Empire is becoming increasingly unfriendly to anybody that calls themselves a Jesus follower. So unfriendly that some Jesus followers are getting imprisoned for following Jesus. So unfriendly that there are some economic sanctions. People are boycotting businesses and interrupting marketplace trading simply because you're a follower of Jesus. You're going out of business. There are social exclusionary practices. People are being kicked out of the the life of the society they live in. They're being pushed out onto the margins and told, you are no longer welcome here because you follow Jesus. And in the midst of these really horrible circumstances that at this time in history are only going to get worse and worse and worse, some of these women and men, some of these families who are trying to be a community of people following Jesus, some of them are going, you know what? Maybe I will simply stop following Jesus. If, if my family member who's imprisoned, if my business which has failed, if my social uh, circles which I'm being kicked out of, if, that's, if all that suffering is happening because I say I'm a Jesus follower, I've got a solution. Maybe I'll just say, yeah, I used to be a Jesus follower, but I'm not anymore. So come back to my shop. Let my family out of prison. Let me back into your social circle. 
The congregation is feeling overwhelming pressure and suffering, and that difficulty is causing them to think maybe it's time to abandon their faith. And it was because of those circumstances that this pastor, we don't know who the pastor is. We have some good guesses about who they might have been, but we don't really know. So this pastor says, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a sermon and I'm going to write it out and I'm going to mail it to them as a letter. And the purpose of this pastor's letter is to encourage perseverance in faith when there's pressure to abandon faith. The purpose of the whole letter of Hebrews is to say, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But you're not the first people to experience difficulty. You're not the first people who have been faithfully following God who have suffered and wondered, what do I do? And and there is hope no matter what suffering you're experiencing. So just persevere. You can do this. And I don't know if that first congregation would have said, yeah, but the problem with perseverance is that the circumstances that build your perseverance are the same circumstances You need perseverance, and that's a problem. They might not have said that, (laughs) but I know that they know that because anybody who's been asked to walk through something way harder than they've ever walked through before has felt that doubt, that question, like, what am I going to do? So in order to speak to that doubt, the author of Hebrews quotes two passages of the Old Testament. And if you look at the structure of the whole passage, this quotation from the Old Testament is meant to be sort of an exclamation mark on the encouragement to persevere. He says, stay faithful, persevere. You're not going to be overcome by the circumstances. It's okay. And here's how we know. Old Testament quotations are encouraging. Here's how we know. In a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. I'm sorry, is that, is, that supposed to, is that supposed to be encouraging? Like, I, th- I think I could guess how that's supposed to be encouraging, but I, I, to me, if I'm honest, when I first read that, I asked the question, what does this have to do with perseverance? And that is a question that I want to spend the, the big chunk of the rest of our time together exploring. Why did the author of Hebrews quote this particular passage as a way to demonstrate to encourage, to, to sort of get people excited to say, I can persevere. Why this quote? Okay, so some technical stuff. First of all, this is actually two short Old Testament verses smashed together. It's a, it's a piece of Isaiah 26.20 smashed together with a piece of Habakkuk 2.3. Next Sunday, we're talking about Habakkuk. But we ain't got no time for that this Sunday. This Sunday, all we're talking about is Isaiah 26, 20. Okay? Now, a couple of interesting things about the prophet Isaiah. Um, one of the three major prophets in the Old Testament. And by many accounts, the book of Isaiah was, was really the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It was the one that maybe was taught and interpreted and relied upon most in ancient Jewish life and Jewish Christian life. By some accounts, the book of Isaiah is referenced or directly quoted in 90% of the chapters in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet. 
Throughout the New Testament, we see all sorts of Old Testament quotations. Isaiah tops the list among the prophets. So it's safe to say, if you're part of a Jewish Jesus-following congregation, the words of the book of Isaiah are very familiar to you because these are clearly central to the teaching of the church at that time. Second thing to know about when Jewish Jesus followers quoted the Old Testament, they did it with a certain style and technique that would often be missed on us. See, because we've talked about this before, if you were raised a little Jewish boy or girl, All of your education, when you learned how to read, when you learned how to write, when you learned how to do math, when you did all of your education, your textbook was what we call the Old Testament. Particularly the first five books, what we call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but also the book of Psalms, and certainly the prophet Isaiah would have been one of your childhood educational textbooks. So when... New Testament Christian authors quote the Old Testament, especially to a Jewish congregation, they don't just quote one little piece. They're not just saying, hey, remember this one little line, but rather when they quote one little line, they're assuming that their congregation knows the information that comes before it and that comes after it. There's actually a specific term for this. When, When somebody quotes one small verse but is referencing the context around it, it's called a remez, which means a hint or a wise teaching. I want to give you a particularly delightful example of a remez from the New Testament. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and there's some kids, and the kids are shouting out to Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. The little kids are praising Jesus. Now, the Pharisees do not like this. The Pharisees do not like Jesus, and they butt heads with him a lot, but they really don't like this. So the Pharisees are, the scripture says, indignant that Jesus is not stopping the kids from praising him. So Jesus quotes to them Psalm 8, verse 2. Jesus says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, this might have caused the Pharisees to be mad because they would have been like, no, 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 no. You're not the one, Jesus, who gets praise. God is the only one who gets praise. But the real cause of their fury at Jesus is revealed in the fact that those Pharisees would have known the very next few lines, which can be summarized to say, from the lips of children and infants, you are ordained praise, and God's enemies will be silenced. Which means Jesus was implying that the Pharisees were God's enemies. And they wouldn't have liked that very much. And many New Testament scholars think Jesus was using a remez. He quoted one line, but he knew they would have known the next line. And that's what would have really ticked them off. So, the author of the book of Hebrews is encouraging us to persevere and quotes a small piece of Isaiah 26, verse 20, which which reads, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. Here's the argument I'm going to make right now. 
If you had been raised studying the book of Isaiah, you would have known that this verse was a pivotal verse in the structure of the prophet Isaiah, and it would have spoken to you an unbelievably powerful message that I'm going to try to unpack for us right now. And the only way I know how to unpack it is to summarize Isaiah 1 through 27. So here's how the book starts. Isaiah chapter 1. Israel, God's people, chosen by God, saved from oppression and slavery by God, given the law of God. God says, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will teach you how to be my people. This is God speaking to his people. They're tight. They've got a good relationship. In the beginning of the prophet Isaiah, is a bit of a downer. The prophet says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your hands are full of blood. And God's people are going, wait a minute, the incense and the the offerings, that's what you told us to do. But now you're telling us that they're meaningless and detestable. I feel like we're, we're just we're just not communicating very well, right, God? Right now, God, I feel like maybe we're, we're just talking past one another right now. Am I missing something? So the prophet Isaiah clarifies. The prophet Isaiah says, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. Israel, you're supposed to have a relationship with God. God has revealed with you God's ways. And, and the prophet Isaiah reminds of that. The prophet Isaiah says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And Israel's going, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. The mountain, like like Sinai. And he gave us the law. And then then the law is the way we can live because we're like a brand new people. We don't know how to do stuff. We've been stuck in slavery for generations. So the law is really helpful to have. So yeah, yeah, we live how God wants us to live. And then... Through that, the life of God is part of the life of the people. We get it. And Isaiah goes, but really, it gets even better than that. Like, you guys know it gets even better. When God's people live according to God's ways, everybody gets blessed. Not just Israel, but all nations gets blessed. Here's how good it could be, the prophet says. All nations will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they even train for war anymore. Isaiah's like, people, like, if God's people would really fully, faithfully live the way God said, this could end warfare worldwide. That's the claim of the prophet Isaiah. Like, whoa! Whoa! Okay, so why again... Why again such harsh words? Why the detestable, incense, meaningless worship? And here's why. (laughs) Chapters 1 through 24, over and over and over and over and over again, recite all the ways that Israel is not faithfully following God, is not pursuing the love and the justice and the mercy and the truth that God has given, but rather all the ways that Israel is living with economic injustice, with social injustice, with racial injustice, with violence, with greed. There's this metaphor that kind of gets sown throughout all 24 chapters. And the metaphor is that Israel, God's people, it's like a vineyard. And if you plant a vineyard, your goal, your desire 
is to have some very sweet grapes to get to eat at the end, or maybe to be able to take those, gre- gra- take, take those grapes and make some delicious wine. That's the goal. But Isaiah says, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but the vineyard yielded only bad fruit because they weren't doing what God told them to do. The biblical word for this, when God has given us a a picture of how life was designed, we know that picture, and then we're given an option about what we're going to do with our lives, and we say, you know what I'm going to do? Not that. I'm going to do this thing on my own over here. The biblical word for that is sin. And the really, really heavy part of Isaiah 1 through 24 is that as it recounts all the way that God's people have sinned, all the ways that really all of humans throughout history have sinned, it then recounts the fact that sin has consequences. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What happens when you sin? I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogant and haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Which is another way to say that when God created the world good and gave humanity what was needed to do good, but humans choose evil instead, there's no way out of the very real consequences of our very real and wrong decisions. Who's feeling happy? Who's feeling in a good mood now that we've summarized Isaiah 1 through 24? Here we go. Summary, part number one. Uh, Isaiah 1 through 24 is super bleak. It is 24 chapters. And I read all of them last week. And let me tell you, it, it like, I needed to persevere <laughs> to make it to the end of all of these chapters. And I would summarize it to say, These chapters are page after page after page of the message that sin has serious consequences, both for Israel, for God's people, and actually for all people. However, in the midst of that really bleak message, there is hope. The hope is just lightly sprinkled throughout these chapters. But those sprinklings are so sweet and beautiful. Words like, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So all the warnings, of which it's the overwhelming majority, in a few moments of great hope, make you realize if you were a serious student of the book of Isaiah, you would know that the first 24 chapters are a long page after page after page where the tension is building. Am I, are God's people going to have despair because of just how horrible things are? Or or am I going to have hope because of how good God is? Like, which one is it going to be? I can't handle the tension. And again, I can't emphasize enough. After 24 chapters of this, there is a break in the action. The tone changes. The content changes. The writing style changes. The vocabulary changes. Like, you cannot overstate how big of a change comes at the end of chapter 24, and then you go into chapters 25, 
and 26. Let me give you a taste of chapters 25 and 26 and see if you can pick up on the subtle difference. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. 24 chapters about sin and its consequences with the tiniest sprinkling of hope followed by two chapters filled with songs of praise. Songs where Israel, God's people, looking at the bleak reality of the world around them, are called to sing songs of praise to their God. And then, yet again, at the end of chapter 26, another just clear, undeniable, unmistakable change in the tone and the content. And chapter 27 is titled, The Deliverance of Israel. And the prophet Isaiah comes back to the metaphor of Israel being a vineyard. But this time he's not focusing on the fruit of the vineyard. Rather, the prophet Isaiah is focusing on the owner of the vineyard, namely God. And Isaiah 27 says, sing about a fruitful vineyard. Why is it fruitful? Because I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. For I am not angry. Wow. Okay, so here we go. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah and thought, whew, Carl, it's just, there's a lot in there. It's hard to stick with it. Isaiah 1 through 27. Chapters 1 through 24. Judgments and warnings. Chapters 24 and 25, songs of praise. Sorry, chapter 25 and 26. Chapter 27, deliverance. The pastor, who's the author of Hebrews, writing a sermon trying to encourage some people who are in some hard circumstances, who are suffering, trying to encourage them to persevere, quotes the last verse of chapter 26. Quotes the last verse of the last song of praise that comes right after all of the unbelievably hard circumstances that Israel was facing and comes right before the promise that God will deliver his people. And what's the one little phrase that the pastor quotes? The phrase is, wait for just a little while. Hold on for just a little longer. Why? The implication is because deliverance is coming.
So if the problem with perseverance is that the overwhelming circumstances that demand our perseverance, and they're so overwhelming, they're just like, they're not two times, they're ten times harder than anything we've done before. If the problem is when that moment comes, I don't have the perseverance I need to make it to that moment, what am I going to do? And here's what I think the author of Hebrews is telling us. He's telling us that praise is the path to perseverance. In the very moment when it seems like praising God is not possible, because like Fran said in our prayer, like maybe my mind is, is full of doubt, my heart is just burdened by the brokenness I see around me, and I've just lost whatever it takes. In that moment, if I can get myself to stop and take my eyes off the world and through praise put my eyes on the God who has always been, who will always be, and who is now faithful, through that work of praise, I can discover the strength to persevere. Now, what's really easy to do is to say, yeah, Carl, that sounds like a nice thing for somebody else to do. But I'm going to ask us, what is it that you are going to do? And so here's my question. A question that says, if I'm trying to figure out how to make my way through this world, how to, how to, how to overcome the challenges I'm facing, um, and if I'm trying to do that, not by just grabbing whatever truth from anywhere that the world throws at me, man, my social media feed seems to be telling me this is a good idea. No, if I'm going to find my way forward by reading God and his word and saying this has been proven true by generation after generation, then the question becomes, how can you make praise part of every single day of your life. If praise really is a key to unlocking that level of perseverance that goes beyond what I really feel prepared for, then how do I start doing it now? So that when I really need it most, I'm already doing the thing that I need most. Here's the illustration that comes to mind about how to think about this idea that praise is the path to perseverance. Um, uh, it, it, have you guys heard there's a, there's a local football team um, you might have paid close attention to them at other times in their past I don't watch much football but I've been told maybe, maybe not a lot of people are really tuning in to the local football team right now but when the football team takes the field there's this phrase it's actually in any, in any sport but when they take the field if they're at the field in their hometown, and the idea is when they're in their hometown, usually the stands are filled with more of their fans, and their fans cheer more often and more loudly for them as a team, and they cheer less often and less loudly for the other team. And there's a name for this, right? It's called the home field advantage. I think praise is kind of like the home field advantage with one significant difference. If you go watch the Broncos 
you know, the year they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and the crowd is cheering like crazy. The players on the field are the ones who receive the advantage. We're the ones in the stands cheering. The players on the field are having a hard time, and they're the ones who receive the advantage. Here's how God designed praise. When we sing the praise of God, when we're the ones in the stand singing and cheering and shouting and celebrating the goodness of God, we're the ones who get the home field advantage. God doesn't need that advantage. He's doing great. He calls us to praise so that we get the advantage of his praise. And the fact of the matter is, we too are living in some challenging circumstances. And praise is the path to perseverance. So let's praise God like our perseverance depends on it. Would you pray with me? God, as we often do, um, we confess. We confess that the, re- the reality of sin, both the, the heavy weight, the ugly brokenness of sin in the world around us, but also the reality of sin in our hearts. God, we confess that it's a weight too heavy for us to bear. Not only is it too heavy for us to bear, but when that brokenness of the world, when the problems and the pain and the challenges just feel overwhelming, uh, we confess that sometimes we're tempted to walk away from you instead of run towards you. And with that confession, God, we thank you And I pray that for each and every one of us, it might be a a word of gratitude, not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, but with our whole being. We thank you that you, God, saw our problems, saw our suffering, and you did not stay far off, but you came down to be with us. You saw our problem and you made it your problem. And you said, I will forgive every sin. I will wash away every sickness. I will heal every brokenness in your life. God, as we, as we sing this final song of praise, as we sing a song about how beautiful and how wonderful and how powerful your name is, um, help us to be honest about the circumstances that are overwhelming us in our life. And with that full honesty, help us be people who always turn to you and find your power in our lives as we sing your praise. And all God's people said, Amen.